Chapter Eight of Essays in Literary Studies by Stephen Leacock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Amazing Genius of O. Henry. To British readers of this book, the above heading may look like the title of a comic story of Irish life with the apostrophe gone wrong. It is, alas, only too likely that many, perhaps the majority, of British readers have never heard of O. Henry. It is quite possible also that they are not ashamed of themselves on that account. Such readers would, in truly British fashion, merely classify O. Henry as one of the people that one has never heard of. If there was any disparagement implied, it would be, as O. Henry himself would have remarked, on him. And yet, there have been sold in the United States, so it is claimed, one million copies of his books. The point is one which illustrates some of the difficulties which beset the circulation of literature, though written in a common tongue, to and fro across the Atlantic. The British and the American public has each its own preconceived ideas about what it proposes to like. The British reader turns with distaste from anything which bears to him the taint of literary vulgarity or cheapness. He instinctively loves anything which seems to have the stamp of scholarship, and revels in a classical allusion even when he doesn't understand it. This state of mind has its qualities and its defects. Undoubtedly, it makes for the preservation of a standard and a proper appreciation of the literature of the past. It helps to keep the fool in his place, imitating, like a watchful monkey, the admirations of better men but on its defective side it sins against the light of intellectual honesty. The attitude of the American reading public is turned the other way. I am not speaking here of the small minority which reads Walter Pater in a soft leather cover, listens to lectures on Burgonzian illusionism, and prefers a drama league to a bridge club. I refer to the great mass of the American people, such as live in framed dwellings in the country, or exist in city boarding-houses, ride in the subway, attend a ten-twenty-thirty vaudeville show in preference to an Ibsen drama, and read a one-cent newspaper because it is intellectually easier than a two. This is the real public. It is not, of course, ignorant in the balder sense. A large part of it is, technically, highly educated, and absorbs the great mass of the fifty thousand college degrees granted in America each year. But it has an instinctive horror of learning, such as a cat feels towards running water. It has invented for itself the ominous word, high-brow, as a sign of warning placed over things to be avoided. This word to the American mind conveys much the same taboo as haunts the tomb of a Polynesian warrior, or the sacred horror that enveloped in ancient days the dark pine grove of a sylvan deity. For the ordinary American, this word, highbrow, has been pieced together out of recollections of a college professor in a black tailcoat and straw hat, destroying the peace of an Adirondack boarding-house, out of the unforgotten dullness of a Chautauqua lecture course, or the expiring agonies of a Browning society. To such a mind, the word highbrow sweeps a wide and comprehensive area with the red flag of warning. It covers, for example, the whole of history, or at least the part of it antecedent to the two last presidential elections. 
all foreign literature and all references to it are high-brow shakespeare except as revived at twenty-five cents a seat with proper alterations in the text is high-brow the works of milton the theory of evolution and in fact all science other than christian science is high-brow a man may only read and discuss such things at his peril if he does so he falls forthwith into the class of the chautauqua lecturer and the vacation professor he loses all claim to mingle in the mainstream of life by taking a hand at ten-cent poker or giving his views on the outcome of the nineteen sixteen elections all this however by way of preliminary discussion suggested by the strange obscurity of o henry in great britain and the wide and increasing popularity of his books in america o henry is more than any author who ever wrote in the united states an american writer as such his work may well appear to a british reader strange and unusual and at a casual glance not attractive it looks at first sight as if written in american slang as if it were the careless unrevised production of a journalist but this is only the impression of an open page or at best a judgment formed by a reader who has had the ill fortune to light upon the less valuable part of o henry's output let it be remembered that he wrote over two hundred stories even in kentucky where it is claimed that all whiskey is good whiskey it is admitted that some whiskey is not so good as the rest so may it be allowed to the most infatuated admirer of o henry to admit that some of his stories are not as good as the others yet even that admission would be reluctant but let us recommence in more orthodox fashion o henry as he signed himself was born in eighteen sixty seven most probably in greensboro north carolina for the first thirty or thirty-five years of his life few knew or cared where he was born or whither he was going now that he has been dead five years he shares already with homer the honour of a disputed birthplace his real name was william sidney porter his nom de plume o henry hopelessly tame and colourless from a literary point of view seems to have been adapted in a whimsical moment with no great thought as to its aptness it is amazing that he should have selected so poor a pen name those who can remember their first shock of pleased surprise on hearing that rudyard kipling's name was really rudyard kipling will feel something like pain in learning that any writer could deliberately christen himself o henry the circumstance is all the more peculiar inasmuch as o henry's works abound in ingenious nomenclature the names that he claps on his central american adventurers are things of joy to the artistic eye general perico jimenez via blanca falcon ramon angel de las cruces y miraflores president of the republic of anchuria don senor el coronel encarnacion rios the very spirit of romance and revolution breathes through them or what more beautiful for a nevada town than topaz city what name more appropriate for a commuter's suburb than Floralhurst? And these are only examples among thousands. In all the two hundred stories that O. Henry wrote, there is hardly a single name that is inappropriate, or without a proper literary suggestiveness, except the name that he signed to them. While still a boy, O. Henry, there is no use in calling him anything else, 
went to Texas, where he worked for three years on a ranch. He drifted into the city of Houston and got employment on a newspaper. A year later, he bought a newspaper of his own in Austin, Texas, for the sum of $250. He rechristened it The Rolling Stone, wrote it and even illustrated it himself. But the paper was too well named. Its editor himself rolled away from it, and from the shores of Texas the wandering restlessness that was characteristic of him wafted him down the great gulf to the enchanted land of Central America. Here he knocked around, as he himself put it, mostly among refugees and consuls. Here, too, was laid the foundation of much of his most characteristic work, his Cabbages and Kings, and such stories as Phoebe and the Fourth in Salvador. Latin America fascinated O. Henry. The languor of the tropics, the sunlit seas with their open bays and broad-sanded beaches, with green palms nodding on the slopes above, white-painted steamers lazily at anchor, quaint Spanish towns with adobe houses and wide squares sunk in their noonday sleep, beautiful senoritas drowsing away the afternoon in hammocks, the tinkling of the mule-bells on the mountain track above the town, the cries of unknown birds issuing from the dense green of the unbroken jungle, and at night, in the soft darkness, the low murmur of the guitar, soft thrumming with the voice of love, these are the sights and sounds of O. Henry's Central America. Here live and move his tattered revolutionists, his gaudy generals of the mimic army of the existing republic. Hither ply his white-painted steamers of the fruit trade. Here the American consul, with a shadowed past and six hundred dollars a year, drinks away the remembrance of his northern energy and his college education in the land of forgetfulness. Hither the absconding banker from the States is dropped from the passing steamer, clutching tight in his shaking hand his valise of stolen dollars. Him the disguised detective, lounging beside the little drinking shop, watches with a furtive eye. And here in this land of enchantment the broken lives, the wasted hopes, the ambition that was never reached, the frailty that was never conquered, are somehow pieced together and illuminated into what they might have been, and even the reckless crime and the open sin, viewed in the softened haze of such an atmosphere, are half forgiven. Whether this is the real Central America or not is of no consequence. It probably is not. The real Central America may best be left to the up-to-date specialist, the energetic newspaper expert, or the traveling lady correspondent, to all such persons, in fact, as are capable of writing six weeks in Nicaragua, or Costa Rica as I saw it. Most likely the Central America of O. Henry is as gloriously unreal as the London of Charles Dickens, or the Salem of Nathaniel Hawthorne, or any other beautiful picture of the higher truth of life that can be shattered into splinters in the distorting prism of cold fact. From Central America O. Henry rolled, drifted, or floated, there was no method in his life, back to Texas again. Here he worked for two weeks in a drug store. This brief experience supplied him all the rest of his life with local color and technical material for his stories. So well has he used it that the obstinate legend still runs that O. Henry was a druggist. 
a strict examination of his work would show that he knew the names of about seventeen drugs and was able to describe the rolling of pills with the lifelike accuracy of one who has rolled them but it was characteristic of his instinct for literary values that even on this slender basis o henry was able to make his characters take down from shelves such mysterious things as sod et pot tart or discuss whether magnesia carbonate or pulverized glycerin is the best excipient and in moments of high tragedy poison themselves with tincture of aconite whether these terms are correctly used or not i do not know nor can i conceive that it matters o henry was a literary artist first last and always it was the effect and the feeling that he wanted for technical accuracy he cared not one whit there is a certain kind of author who thinks to make literature by introducing let us say a plumber using seven different kinds of tap-washers with seven different names and there is a certain type of reader who is thereby conscious of seven different kinds of ignorance and is fascinated forthwith from pedantry of this sort o henry is entirely free even literal accuracy is nothing to him so long as he gets his effect thus he commences in one of his stories with the brazen statement in texas you may journey for a thousand miles in a straight line you can't of course and o henry knew it it is only his way of saying that texas is a very big place so with his tincture of aconite it may be poisonous or it may be not but it sounds poisonous and that is enough for o henry this is true art after his brief drugstore experience o henry moved to new orleans even in his texan and central american days he seems to have scribbled stories in new orleans he set to work deliberately as a writer much of his best work was poured forth with the prodigality of genius into the columns of the daily press without thought of fame the money that he received so it is said was but a pittance stories that would sell to-day were o henry alive and writing them now for a thousand dollars went for next to nothing throughout his life money meant little or nothing to him if he had it he spent it loaned it or gave it away when he had it not he bargained with an editor for the payment in advance of a story which he meant to write and of which he exhibited the title or a few sentences as a sample and which he wrote faithfully enough when he got round to it the story runs of how one night a beggar on the street asked o henry for money he drew forth a coin from his pocket in the darkness and handed it to the man a few moments later the beggar looked at the coin under the street lamp and being even such a beggar as o henry loved to write about he came running back with the words say you made a mistake this is a twenty-dollar gold piece i know it is said o henry but it's all i have the story may not be true but at least it ought to be from new orleans o henry moved to new york and became for the rest of his life a unit among the four million dwellers in flats and apartment houses and sandstone palaces who live within the roar of the elevated railway and from whom the pale light of the moon and the small effects of the planetary system are overwhelmed in the glare of the great white way here o henry's finest work was done 
inimitable, unsurpassable stories that make up the volumes entitled The Four Million, The Trimmed Lamp, and The Voice of the City. Marvelous indeed they are, written off-hand with the bold carelessness of the pen that only genius dare use, but revealing behind them such a glowing of the imagination, and such a depth of understanding of the human heart as only genius can make manifest. What O. Henry did for Central America, he does again for New York. It is transformed by the magic of his imagination. He waves a wand over it, and it becomes a city of mystery and romance. It is no longer the roaring, surging metropolis that we thought we knew, with its clattering elevated, its unending crowds, and on every side the repellent selfishness of the rich, the grim struggle of the poor, and the listless despair of the outcast. It has become, as O. Henry loves to call it, Baghdad upon the subway. The glare is gone. There is a soft light suffusing the city. Its corner drug stores turn to enchanted bazaars. From the open doors of its restaurants and palm rooms, there issues such a melody of softened music that we feel we have but to cross the threshold, and there is Baghdad waiting for us beyond. A transformed waiter hands us to a chair at a little table, Arabian, I will swear it, beside an enchanted rubber tree. There is red wine such as Omar Khayyam drank, here on Sixth Avenue. At the tables about us are a strange and interesting crew, dervishes in the disguise of American businessmen, caliphs masquerading as tourists, Bedouins from Syria and fierce phantassins from the desert turned into western visitors from Texas, and among them, can we believe our eyes, Horis from the inner harems of Ispahan and Kandahar, whom we mistook but yesterday for the ladies of a Schubert chorus. As we pass out, we pay our money to an enchanted cashier with golden hair, sitting behind glass, under the spell of some magician without a doubt, and then taking O. Henry's hand, we wander forth among the ever-changing scenes of night adventure, the mingled tragedy and humor of the four million that his pen alone can depict. Now did ever Haurun al-Rashid and his viziers, wandering at will in the narrow streets of their Arabian city, meet such varied adventure as lies before us, strolling hand in hand with O. Henry in the new Baghdad that he reveals. But let us turn to the stories themselves. O. Henry wrote in all two hundred short stories of an average of about fifteen pages each. This was the form in which his literary activity shaped itself by instinct. A novel he never wrote. A play he often meditated but never achieved. One of his books, Cabbages and Kings, can make a certain claim to be continuous, but even this is rather a collection of little stories than a single piece of fiction. But it is an error of the grossest kind to say that O. Henry's work is not sustained. In reality his canvas is vast. His New York stories, like those of Central America or of the West, form one great picture as gloriously comprehensive in its scope as the lengthiest novels of a Dickens or the canvas of a da Vinci. It is only the method that is different, not the result. It is hard indeed to illustrate O. Henry's genius by the quotation of single phrases and sentences. The humor that is in his work lies too deep for that. His is not the comic wit that explodes the reader into a huge guffaw of laughter and vanishes. 
his humour is of that deep quality that smiles at life itself and mingles our amusement with our tears still harder is it to try to show the amazing genius of o henry as a plot-maker as a designer of incident no one better than he can hold the reader in suspense nay more than that the reader scarcely knows that he is suspended until at the very close of the story o henry so to speak turns on the lights and the whole tale is revealed as an entirety but to do justice to a plot in a few paragraphs is almost impossible let the reader consider to what a few poor shreds even the best of our novels or plays is reduced when we try to set forth the basis of it in the condensed phrase of a textbook of literature or diminish it to the language of the scenario of a moving picture let us take an example we will transcribe our immortal hamlet as faithfully as we can into a few words with an eye to explain the plot and nothing else it will run about as follows hamlet's uncle kills his father and marries his mother and hamlet is so disturbed about this that he either is mad or pretends to be mad in this condition he drives his sweetheart insane and she drowns or practically drowns herself hamlet then kills his uncle's chief adviser behind an arras either in mistake for a rat or not hamlet then gives poison to his uncle and his mother stabs laertes and kills himself there is much discussion among the critics as to whether his actions justify us in calling him insane there the example is perhaps not altogether convincing it does not seem somehow faithful though it is to do shakespeare justice but let it at least illustrate the point under discussion the mere bones of a plot are nothing we could scarcely form a judgment on female beauty by studying the skeletons of a museum of anatomy but with this distinct understanding let me try to present the outline of a typical o henry story i select it from the volume entitled the gentle grafter a book that is mainly concerned with the wiles of jeff peters and his partners and associates mr peters who acts as the narrator of most of the stories typifies the perennial fakir and itinerant grafter of the western states ready to turn his hand to anything from selling patent medicines under a naphtha lamp on the street corner of a western town to peddling bargain bibles from farm to farm anything in short that does not involve work and carries with it the peculiar excitement of trying to keep out of the state penitentiary all the world loves a grafter at least a genial and ingenious grafter a robin hood who plunders an abbot to feed a beggar an alfred jingle a scapin a raffles or any of the multifarious characters of the world's literature who reveal the fact that much that is best in humanity may flourish even on the shadowy side of technical iniquity of this glorious company is mr jefferson peters but let us take him as he is revealed in jeff peters as a personal magnet and let us allow himself to introduce himself and his business i struck fisher hill mr peters relates in a buckskin suit moccasins long hair and a thirty-carat diamond ring that i got from an actor in texarkana i don't know what he ever did with the pocket-knife i swapped him for it i was dr wahoo the celebrated indian medicine man i carried only one best bet just then and that was the resurrection bitters 
it was made of life-giving plants and herbs accidentally discovered by Taqwala, the beautiful wife of the chief of the Choctaw Nation, while gathering truck to garnish a platter of boiled dog for an annual corn dance. In the capacity of Dr. Wahoo, Mr. Peters struck Fisher Hill. He went to a druggist and got credit for half a gross of eight-ounce bottles and corks, and with the help of the running water from the tap in the hotel room, he spent a long evening manufacturing resurrection bitters. The next evening the sales began. The bitters at fifty cents a bottle started off like sweetbreads on toast at a vegetarian dinner. Then there intervenes a constable with a German silver badge. "'Have you got a city license?' he asks, and Mr. Peter's medicinal activity comes to a full stop. The threat of prosecution under the law for practicing medicine without a license puts Mr. Peters for the moment out of business. He returns sadly to his hotel, pondering on his next move. Here, by good fortune, he meets a former acquaintance, a certain Andy Tucker, who has just finished a tour in the southern states, working the great Cupid combination package on the chivalrous and unsuspecting South. Andy, says Jeff, in speaking of his friend's credentials, was a good street man, and he was more than that, he respected his profession and was satisfied with three hundred percent profit. He had plenty of offers to go into the illegitimate drug and garden seed business, but he was never to be tempted off the straight path. Andy and Jeff take counsel together in long debate on the porch of the hotel, and here, apparently, a piece of good luck came to Jeff's help. The very next morning a messenger brings word that the mayor of the town is suddenly taken ill. The only doctor of the place is twenty miles away. Jeff Peters is summoned to the mayor's bedside. This mayor Banks, Jeff relates, was in bed all but his whiskers and feet. He was making internal noises that would have had everybody in San Francisco hiking for the parks. A young man was standing by the bedside holding a cup of water. Mr. Peters, called to the patient's side, is very cautious. He draws attention to the fact that he is not a qualified practitioner, is not a regular disciple of Esculapius. The mayor groans in pain. The young man at the bedside, introduced as Mr. Biddle, the mayor's nephew, urges Mr. Peters, or Dr. Wahoo, in the name of common humanity, to attempt a cure. Finally, Jeff Peters promises to treat the mayor by scientific demonstration. He proposes, he says, to make use of the great doctrine of psychic financiering, of the enlightening school of long-distance subconscious treatment of fallacies and meningitis, of that wonderful indoor sport known as personal magnetism. But he warns the mayor that the treatment is difficult. It uses up great quantities of soul strength. It comes high. It cannot be attempted under two hundred and fifty dollars. The mayor groans, but he yields. The treatment begins. You ain't sick, says Dr. Wahoo, looking the patient right in the eye. You ain't got any pain. The right lobe of your perihelion is subsided. The result is surprising. The mayor's system seems to respond at once. I do feel some better, Doc, he says. Darned if I don't. Mr. Peters assumes a triumphant air. He promises to return next day for a second and final treatment. 
I'll come back, he says to the young man, at eleven. You may give him eight drops of turpentine and three pounds of steak. Good morning. Next day the final treatment is given. The mayor is completely restored. Two hundred and fifty dollars, all in cash, is handed to Dr. Wahoo. The young man asks for a receipt. It is no sooner written out by Jeff Peters than, Now do your duty, officer, says the mayor, grinning much unlike a sick man. Mr. Biddle lays his hand on my arm. You're under arrest, Dr. Wahoo, alias Peters, says he, for practicing medicine without authority under the state law. Who are you? I asks. I'll tell you who he is, says Mr. Mayor, sitting up in bed. He's a detective employed by the State Medical Society. He's been following you over five counties. He came to me yesterday, and we fixed up this scheme to catch you. I guess you won't do any more doctoring around these parts, Mr. Fakir. What is it you said I had, Doc? The mayor laughs. Compound. Well, it wasn't softening of the brain, I guess, anyway. Ingenious, isn't it? One hadn't suspected it but will the reader kindly note the conclusion of the story as it follows, handled with the lightning rapidity of a conjuring trick. "'Come on, officer,' I says, dignified. "'I may as well make the best of it.' And then I turns to old Banks and rattles my chains. "'Mr. Mayor,' says I, "'the time will come soon when you'll believe that personal magnetism is a success, and you'll be sure that it succeeded in this case, too.' and I guess it did. When we got nearly to the gate, I says, We might meet somebody now, Andy. I reckon you better take em off, and— Hey? Why, of course it was Andy Tucker. That was his scheme, and that's how we got the capital to go into business together. Now let us set beside this a story of a different type, the furnished room, which appears in the volume called The Four Million. It shows O. Henry at his best as a master of that supreme pathos that springs, with but little adventitious aid of time or circumstance, from the fundamental things of life itself. In the sheer art of narration there is nothing done by Maupassant that surpasses the furnished room. The story runs, so far as one dare attempt to reproduce it without quoting it all word for word, after this fashion. The scene is laid in New York, in the lost district of the Lower West Side, where the wandering feet of actors and one-week transients seek furnished rooms in dilapidated houses of fallen grandeur. One evening after dark, a young man prowled among these crumbling red mansions, ringing their bells. At the twelfth, he rested his lean hand baggage upon the step, and wiped the dust from his hat-band and forehead. The bell sounded faint and far away in some remote hollow depths. "'I have the third floor back vacant since a week back,' says the landlady. "'It's a nice room. It ain't often vacant. I had some most elegant people in it last summer. No trouble at all, and paid in advance to the minute. The water's at the end of the hall. Sprouls and Mooney kept it three months. They done a vaudeville sketch. Miss Bretta Sprouls, you may have heard of her,' Oh, that was just the stage name. Right there over the dresser is where the marriage certificate hung, framed. The gas is here, and you see there's plenty of closet room. It's a room everyone likes. It never stays idle long. 
the young man takes the room paying a week in advance then he asks a young girl miss vashner miss eloise vashner do you remember such a one among your lodgers she would be singing on the stage most likely the landlady shakes her head they comes and goes she tells him she doesn't call that one to mind it is the same answer that he has been receiving up and down in the crumbling houses of the lost district through weeks and months of wandering no always no five months of ceaseless interrogation and the inevitable negative so much time spent by day in questioning managers agents schools and choruses by night among the audiences of theatres from all-star casts down to music halls so low that he dreaded to find what he most hoped for the young man left in his sordid room of the third floor back among its decayed furniture its ragged brocade upholstery sinks into a chair the dead weight of despair is on him then suddenly as he rested there the room was filled with the strong sweet odor of mignonette the flower that she had always loved the perfume that she had always worn it is as if her very presence was beside him in the empty room he rises he cries aloud what dear as if she had called to him she has been there in the room he knows it he feels it then eager tremulous with hope he searches the room tears open the crazy chest of drawers fumbles among the shelves for some sign of her nothing and still nothing a crumpled playbill a half-smoked cigar the dreary and ignoble small records of many a peripatetic tenant but of the woman that he seeks nothing yet still that haunting perfume that seems to speak her presence at his very side the young man dashes trembling from the room again he questions the landlady was there not before him in the room a young lady surely there must have been fair of medium height and with reddish gold hair surely there was but the landlady as if obdurate shakes her head i can tell you again she says twas sprawls and mooney as i said miss bretta sprawls it was in the theatres but mrs mooney she was the marriage certificate hung framed on a nail over the young man returns to his room it is all over his search is in vain the ebbing of his last hope has drained his faith for a time he sat staring at the yellow singing gaslight then he rose he walked to the bed and began to tear the sheets into strips with the blade of his knife he drove them tightly into every crevice around windows and door when all was snug and taut he turned out the light turned the gas full on again and laid himself gratefully on the bed and now let the reader note the ending paragraphs of the story so told that not one word of it must be altered or abridged from the form in which o henry framed it it was mrs mccool's night to go with the can for beer so she fetched it and sat with mrs purdy the landlady in one of those subterranean retreats where housekeepers foregather and the worm dieth seldom i rented out my third floor back this evening said mrs purdy across a fine circle of foam a young man took it he went up to bed two hours ago now did ye mrs purdy ma'am said mrs mccool with intense admiration you do be a wonder for rentin rooms of that kind and did ye tell him then 
she concluded in a husky whisper laden with mystery rooms said mrs purdy in her furriest tones are furnished for to rent i did not tell him mrs mccool tis right ye are ma'am tis by renting rooms we cape alive ye have the rail sense for business ma'am there be many people will reject the rentin of a room if they be told a suicide has been after dyin in the bed of it as you say we has our living to be making remarked mrs purdy yis ma'am tis true tis just one wake ago this day i helped ye lay out the third floor back a pretty slip of a colleen she was to be killin herself wid de gas a sweet little face she had mrs purdy ma'am she'd a been called handsome as you say said mrs purdy assenting but critical but for that mole she had a growin by her left eyebrow do fill up your glass again mrs mccool beyond these two stories i do not care to go but if the reader is not satisfied let him procure for himself the story called a municipal report in the volume strictly business after he has read it he will either pronounce o henry one of the greatest masters of modern fiction or else well or else he is a jackass let us put it that way o henry lived some nine years in new york but little known to the public at large towards the end there came to him success a competence and something that might be called celebrity if not fame but it was marvellous how his light remained hid the time came when the best-known magazines eagerly sought his work he could have commanded his own price but the notoriety of noisy success the personal triumph of literary conspicuousness he neither achieved nor envied a certain cruel experience of his earlier days tragic unmerited and not here to be recorded had left him shy of mankind at large and in the personal sense anxious only for obscurity even when the american public in tens and hundreds of thousands read his matchless stories they read them so to speak in isolated fashion as personal discoveries unaware for years of the collective greatness of o henry's work viewed as a total the few who were privileged to know him seemed to have valued him beyond all others and to have found him even greater than his work and then in mid-career as it seemed there was laid upon him the hand of a wasting and mortal disease which brought him slowly to his end his courage and his gentle kindliness unbroken to the last i shall die he said one winter with one of the quoted phrases that fell so aptly from his lips in the good old summer time and in the good old summer time with a smile and a jest upon his lips he died don't turn down the light he is reported to have said to those beside his bed and then as the words of a popular song flickered across his mind he added i'm afraid to go home in the dark that was five years ago since his death his fame in america has grown greater and greater with every year the laurel wreath that should have crowned his brow is exchanged for the garland laid upon his grave and the time is coming let us hope when the whole english-speaking world will recognize in o henry one of the great masters of modern literature end of section eight